0: Well, good evening and a very warm welcome uh, to each and every one of you. Uh, My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at St. Paul's and it's my privilege to introduce our two speakers, which I will do in just uh, a moment. But before that, uh, i better just tell you how this evening will work. Well, will hopefully work. Uh, In a moment, uh, Eve Poole and Angus Ritchie will talk about the Kingdom of God and what on earth money has to do with it. Each of them will talk first about the kingdom of God and what it would look like to them and then about how we can bring it on earth as it is in heaven, so to speak. So each of them will speak twice uh, for 10 minutes at a time. And after we've wrapped up that small matter, uh, we will take all your questions or as many as we can and down here... Uh, It's different to when we're upstairs uh, because down here you need to put your hand up and a microphone will be brought to you. You don't need to write down your questions down here. Uh, Now this means that it would be really wonderful if you can actually have a think about your questions so that by the time the microphone gets to you, you've got it nicely, concisely formulated and ready for when the microphone arrives. Uh, It's a question, not a speech. Uh, And this way we can keep momentum. Uh, For any tweeters among you, we'll be tweeting using the hashtag moneyandgod. So do feel free to join in. Reception down here was originally for corpses, not for Wi-Fi. (laughs) Uh, But if you're patient, it does work eventually. Um, We'll end promptly at 8 and there's a bookstore by Nelson, uh, which uh, you pass probably on your way in. And you'll be able there to buy Angus and Eve's books. And you can find out more about the theology and community center, of which more in a moment. And so it does give me enormous pleasure this evening to introduce our two speakers. Dr. Eve Poole is an associate at Ashridge Business School, where her focus is on such things as leadership, learning, emotional intelligence, ethics, and good change management. So nothing for the Church of England to learn from there then. (laughs) She has a PhD in Capitalism and Theology from Cambridge. She has worked for the Church Commissioners, Deloitte uh, Consulting in the financial services industry, and her latest book, Capitalism's Toxic Assumptions Redefining Next Generation Economics was published by Bloomsbury last year, and the Financial Times uh, called it forensic and inspiring. She was a huge hit at the Greenbelt Festival last year, and I can exclusively reveal this evening that she has brought props for her talk is a very rare occurrence in St. Paul's Cathedral, let me tell you. The Reverend Canon Dr. Angus Ritchie is the director and founder of the Theology and Community Centre in the East End of London. And in the ten or so years of its existence, it's gone from Angus buying his own desk and borrowing office space to an organisation of 18 people working with numerous churches and other organisations Transforming communities through community organizing, theological reflection, and prayer. The center has numerous ways of doing that, from setting up an ethical cleaning uh, firm, Clean for Good, which will be launched this autumn, to using the creative arts to open up new horizons, and to a leadership program fostering a new generation of Christian leaders who can bring experience of inner city communities into dialogue with Westminster. Closest to us tonight, of course, is their economic justice programme, which focuses both on fighting for better regulation of payday lenders and betting shops, and at the same time on the Church Credit Champions Network, boosting local sources of affordable credit. Angus was Fellows Chaplain at Magdalen College in Oxford. He's written for The Guardian. He's an honorary canon of Worcester Cathedral, but... His center of gravity is very much the East End, where the center has been located and where it is inspired and inspiring. He's currently priest in charge of St. George's in the East. So, would you please join me in welcoming tonight Eva Poole and Angus Ritchie.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, good evening. Um, I thought that it would be good to start uh, and continue, in fact, by um, living up to some stereotypes about clergy with some out-of-date cultural references. So, the text for the first set of remarks is from the Andrews Sisters. <laughs> money is the root of all evil. Take it away. Take it away. Of course, a, a misquotation of scripture. Money. Is said there to be at the root of all kinds of evil but in the way that our culture understands money and spirituality it sets up the apparent paradox we have tonight what does money the material world trade economics have to do with the spiritual thing which is the kingdom of God one of my inspirations for thinking about this indeed for coming to the east end of London uh, was Father Kenneth Leach who some of you uh, may have known and who died recently Uh, and uh, Ken wrote on um, spirituality Uh, Soul Friend is um, a a wonderful guide to spiritual direction and also on economics and I think was asked more than once at conferences which Ken Leach are you? Are you the one who writes about spirituality or are you the one who writes about money and economics and justice. In people's heads, there seems a problem about how these relate to each other. And yet, if we start with Scripture, if we start with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, the paradox is really why anyone thought they didn't relate. Because when the Hebrew Bible talks to us about what it is to be faithful to God, it is all about embodiment. It's all about how our bodies, how the material world, how the way we use money and lend, how we hoard or share wealth and land is a sign of our faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. In the vision of the Old Testament, how we use money, is deeply connected to whether God is reigning in our lives and in our communities. And the New Testament, if anything, intensifies that. For the New Testament teaches us uh, that not only are we commanded to use the material world in a way that builds right relationship with our neighbor. Not only does that honor God, but actually more than that, when our material relationships enable communion between human beings, we share something of the life of God. We participate, as 1 Peter puts it, in the divine nature. When we live in love, we live In God. And even more than that, because in Christ the word has become flesh, our material world can bear the divine life. That's why in the early church there was a great controversy about icons. Were they simply graven images? And after much debate and argument and violence, the church said no. It was possible for material things not to be idols, not simply to be a distraction from God, but to be icons. The material world could be a window onto the divine life, a way in which we participate in that life. My two-year-old son is One of that first generation for whom the word icon will probably be more about computers than it will about religion. But that's not a bad image. Why do we talk about icons in computers? Well, you click on them, you hover over them and click on them, and they open up a whole world. And in the veneration of an icon, the material world becomes not simply a flat surface but something that draws us into a deeper communion, either directly with Christ or through an encounter with one of his saints, with God. So again, the challenge, the opportunity is for the material world and our material exchanges to become a means of deepening our communion, our reciprocity with our neighbours, and in doing so, finding something of the divine life. And that is the challenge we face when we think about money and how it's used. That's the challenge we face in this city when we think about wealth, and in particular the wealth locked up in housing, an increasingly important part of these economic debates. In the way we handle money and wealth individually and corporately, is it an icon? Are we receiving a gift from God as embodied human beings so that we can grow in mutual dependence so that our communities can be places where relationship flourishes? Or are we making of it an idol? Is the material world becoming something which destroys our communion with God and with neighbour. The papal encyclical Laudato Si, it's been known very much for what it has to say about the environment. But Pope Francis talks not only about physical ecology, but about human ecology. And I think in a city like London, that's a crucial question for us. One of the pictures in the Bible of the kingdom of God is of a city, of human beings in a physical space which allows the right kind of relationships to flourish. And how is money shaping our streets and our neighborhoods? What human ecology is being encouraged and what human ecology is being destroyed? What would it mean for us not to think of money as something dirty and unspiritual, but something with a huge potential to build up or to destroy communion, something of immense spiritual significance for us all.
2: So what is money, then, exactly? Um, You all have a penny on your chairs. See a penny, pick it up, and all day you'll have good luck. These are particularly lucky pennies because Angus blessed them before I put them out. Could you speak? Can you hear now? Can you turn the volume up, please? Is that better? So your penny is because we're going to talk about what money is before we start talking about what you might do to make yours an icon and not an idol. So to begin with, there's a, a trading game that I play with my children called Settlers of Catan, where you have bricks and you have corn, all kinds of things that you trade, commodities that you barter in order to build things or whatever. And it quickly became clear that you might have corn today and want some pigs but no one had any pigs so you had to do a deal with the pig person that you gave him corn today anyway on the basis he would give you pigs next week and and so a tally system emerged fairly quickly shortly followed by coinage so the penny that you have um, as it is an example of some coinage I also have one here I'm going to leave these out at the end so you can have a look at them this in fact is a silver denarius and those of you who know your history and your bible will know that this has caesar's image on it render unto caesar and was equivalent to a day's wages. And this is significant because coinage was originally a store of value. So this is silver, it's made of silver, of a weight that was equivalent to its value. And for a long time, our coinage was made of precious metal, Um, and you had cougarans until fairly recently, I don't know if they still exist even, uh, and sovereigns and things like that. Similarly, um, so that you could have a store of value, so you wouldn't have to melt down your jewellery, you could just cash in the actual gold or silver, whatever you had. Um, For a whole variety of reasons, we got so familiar with using coins that we didn't really need them to actually be worth what it said on them. and We started producing alloys like your penny. Um, The first brass, we talk about people with brass, Uh, The first brass modern coin was the thrupney bit. Do you remember thrupney bits? Uh, This is one with a thrift on it, which was the first thrupneys that were made in the late 30s. And this was the first time they'd used brass in coinage. So uh, it was part of the war effort and all of that, but people were a bit suspicious about these dodgy coins. I gather that the next one pound coin is going to have that same interesting shape around it. So look out for that. I think it's due out next year. Um, and then people got used to the idea that you didn't really need to have something that was physically equivalent in terms of weighing the amount of silver to the equivalency of the, the goods you were trying to get. So we started using promissory notes. Do you remember your old pound notes? This one's got Sir Isaac Newton on it. My granny used to give me one of these and tell me to look out for the Toblerone and the lollies, so you can find that later. Uh, this is a Scottish one, still used up north. Um, and as you know, these are, these are debt. These are, I promise, to pay the bearer on demand. So, so they're actually a promissory note, a bit like a check. Here's one from the British Linen Bank that somebody in Portobello used to pay for a subscription to Hair and Beauty Publications Limited in the 70s. Um, and here's one also from... Scotland, which was cheques to self. Do you remember that when we couldn't go to ATMs and get cash out? You had to write a cheque to yourself to get money. Um, So we were quite used to that, using bits of paper. And actually, in some clubs, you just had a club chequebook. You didn't even have to have a bank chequebook. They kind of trusted that as long as you'd written an amount and signed your name, you were good for the cash. So quickly, you can see just in those transitions from a silver coin to an alloy coin to a promissory note, whether it's a bank note backed by the Bank of England or a check backed by whichever organisation is behind it. We got quite used to this idea that we didn't really need something that was equivalent value. It It was a sort of promissory note or a kind of guarantee that there would be money at the end of it. So nowadays of course we've got credit cards, we've even got Oyster, we don't even need to, we just wave it now. I think most of us have got cards that have the same technology, you could just wave them at machines and pay for your milk without even signing anything. And of course what this means is that gradually over a period of time we've kind of lost track of that very specific correspondence between the physical equivalence and paying for things in money and what money is and what we have to do with it. Um, there were some very interesting manoeuvres on the way around tokens. Here's one which was um, the wages for a British rail driver They used to just get paid in a bit of metal that they could dob in at the local shop. Um, It got quite extravagant. You probably remember your co-op tokens, do you? And your milk tokens, that's a loaf token, so you could go and get your loaf from the co-op. And do you remember truck stores? These were quite interesting. Uh, It was particularly in... um when people were employed by large factories and they were slightly worried that the chaps would drink away the wages so they'd pay them in tokens that were only redeemable in uh, the factory store for rather overinflated prices um, so that you could only ever spend them on goods to feed your family rather than spend them down uh, the bookies or whatever. Um, So if we think about transitions here and therefore what does money mean, it started off being about coinage Uh, and we have lots of stories about misers and counting money and hiding it under the bed and all that kind of thing, it rapidly became about information, such that now we can wave something at a screen and a number comes up and it tells us if we're sort of up or down on that transaction. Um, And then, because now money moves at lightning-quick speed around the world, it is much more about power and politics. And let me just say a little bit more about that. If you think about what money has become, um, and if you think about what the banks do... Most of us have a bank account, and we have put our money I, – I, sub- I suspect not physically, uh, unless you've sort of got a big suitcase in some dodgy regime somewhere uh, – but we have our pay or, or pension or investments, whatever it is, going into a bank account. Uh, and so we know that the bank has that amount of money. Um, because of fractional reserve banking, however, what banks do is they then lend that out – Um, at interest, um, so that the money keeps in circulation, it's not just sort of hidden under the the bank's bed, as it were. Um, And now, as you know, that's got increasingly sophisticated, and um, in terms of transactions, if you think about your average stock market transaction, um, and your average time for which a share is now held, about 11 seconds or something, because with computer trading, um, these things just move around the world as quickly as an algorithm can, quicker than you can blink your eye. Um, And so it is increasingly something that humans find quite Hard to keep track of um, relative value. So it's gone very quickly, information that we can actually get our hands around and be quite comfortable and in control about, to something that feels very much like ebbs and flows of power and politics around the globe. We've seen that very viscerally with the Panama Papers and huge amounts of panic about what this means for credibility and leadership, what this means about the robustness of various regimes. Um, And we also see it very viscerally ourselves when we think about. Policies like quantitative easing, and if you think about what that was, it was a a worry that the whole city had kind of got locked um, with the credit crunch, and that there was a need to put more money into the system to keep it going and keep loans being made to organisations who needed the money to invest. Um, And so the government just invented some. Uh, That's what quantitative easing is. In fact, every time the bank makes a loan, they invent money, because as we know, there isn't necessarily the money hidden in the vaults to back that. There's a 2% or something against liabilities. So we now have this banking system where there isn't really any money underneath it. It is all about trust. So these very small ways of trusting, with a pound that says, go to the Bank of England and they will pay you the equivalent in silver or gold for this, or you go to the bank or your club or whatever and cash in the cheque, We now have this system that is very hard for us to understand and I think that is a brilliant and fabulous opportunity for Christians because I think it is easier for us to understand how we can add theological value to that than it is to think about transactions to do with money. So if you think about exchanging coinage, this is still a really important thing to do locally by the way because an awful lot of businesses rely on cash transactions because banking is very expensive for them. So it is a good discipline to get cash out of the bank and use it for transactions locally. And it gives you an opportunity to have a relationship with someone that you're transacting with. That is where you can add theological value in making the right transactions with the right people. In terms of information flows, I'm going to talk to you in a while about how you can use your own personal information flows through your bank statement to figure out what information signals you're sending out to the market. But in terms of power and politics, we have a huge opportunity for solidarity here. We know that we are very privileged living in London, living in the UK in terms of our relative power and our relative richness compared to the rest of the globe. We also live in a very sophisticated financial market which has a huge amount of heft internationally and a lot of what we do here is copied globally. So changes we make here to banking regulations, to behaviour around money do echo out. And consumer behaviour here can be extremely powerful because by putting our muscle – behind the transactions we make voting for companies with our cash voting for organizations with our cash we can send out signals that will create a different sort of market the sort of market we think god would bless not condemn so i'll talk to you a bit more about that in a minute but meanwhile back to angus
1: So what can we do to make money, to make our daily exchanges a bit more like icons and a bit less like idols? Well we started with the Andrews sisters uh, and uh, my second text is from Banana Rama. It's not what you do, it's <laughs> the way that you do it. Um, and that's um, I think a deeply Christian insight. Um, after all, the journey we've just been on in Holy Week and Easter is all about the fact that the kingdom of God is not something that can be imposed by force and domination and violence. That The kinds of relationships, the kind of community God is calling us into needs to be brought to birth in a different kind of way. One of the words used if you've got a book of common prayer or a King James version of the Bible for the relationship at the heart of God is charity. Ye who do earnestly repent you of your sins and desire to live in love and charity with your neighbours. It's interesting to think about how the word charity has changed in meaning over the years from a relationship of mutuality and of reciprocity, of face-to-face encounter, into something that one group of people, by giving money to an institution, might do to or for another. And at the heart of the Bible and how God seems to work to bring about his kingdom in this material world is the action of the poorest, of those uh, on the sharp end of injustice. And if we want our money to be used in a way that brings in the kingdom of God, I suggest that's a really important place to start with the perspectives and the action of the poorest in society And if we are to tackle the way that money becomes an idol, the way in which it forces apart relationships at its worst, the ways in which it is driving apart communities... I mean, I'm a priest just one stop away from here uh, in Shadwell, uh, and already you can see in the local schools... Um, the changes just over the year I've been there and the number of families who no longer can afford to live there because of a housing crisis. You can see what money, when used badly, is doing to families and to relationships. If we want to challenge that, we can't challenge that individualism individualistically. We need to think about what we can do as a body. And that's challenging. That brings us to institutions. Because after all, all an institution is, they get a bad press these days, institutions. People don't really like them. How often do people say, I like to follow the teachings of Jesus, but... I don't really feel I need to be part of the institutional church. How many institutions are finding it more difficult to get people to participate in today's society? Not just the church and mosques, but girl guides and scouts and political parties. We're we're a people less disposed to be part of institutions. And yet an institution is what happens whenever human beings promise to be reliable and faithful to one another over time, whether that's the institution of marriage, of a scout group, of a trade union, of the church. They're little pockets of power, the power to make a difference, the power to organise for justice. And I think one of the most hopeful signs in recent years of the way money can be held to account the way that our earthly kingdoms can show a little more of the rule and reign of god is the work of community organizing the work of cleaners and security staff in canary wharf through churches trade unions mosques to get a living wage to say well if huge amounts of money are being invested by the government into this great financial centre, how do we make sure that some of that ends up in the pockets of the poorest people in the area? How do we make sure that in the huge transformative developments around the Olympic Park, there is some affordable housing? How do we make sure that there is some legal limit on the extent to which the desperation of people with a shortfall in their income can be exploited by payday lenders. On those three issues, we have seen Christian social teaching, this biblical vision of the reign of God having a concrete impact on people's lives in this city. There is something we can do about this if we are prepared to do it together, and if the way that we do it embodies something of the vision we're trying to pursue. And that means working together, being patient with the frustrating task of being part of an institution, putting up with other human beings with all their foibles and placing those who experience most keenly low-pay, exploitative credit, housing they can't afford, at the very heart of that action.
2: So I was a bit general earlier, a bit theoretical maybe when I talked about money as information and money as power and politics, I want to just explain what this means you could do about that Um, I think you're all frightfully brave for coming because I think even coming and being open to hear the challenges from God to money is an extraordinary thing, so thank you for coming This is my bank statement I'd like to talk to you about bank statements because I think it's something that most of us have and have access to and I'm not sure we give it the attention we might so let's go back and think about what this represents and what we might do powerfully with it so if you think about what a market is it's basically a load of messages about supply and demand and the thing about that is that we can infinitely change that market by supply, by changing supply and demand so the church has done that beautifully through fair trade as an example That was an initiative started by churchgoers and largely furthered by people spending Sundays at the back of the church selling what was originally fairly second-rate coffee uh, (laughs) to willing victims um, who believed in the vision. And now we have an extraordinarily vibrant fair trade market that covers a whole host of different goods and is moving into services too, and is giving people a leg up all over the world. And that's us voluntarily overpaying more than we could get it down cheap at the supermarket for, because we wanted to pay a price premium for something we thought was doing good. That's an example of changing supply and demand messages in order to change the market for the better. So all these transactions you make are your votes into the market This is your report card for the extent to which you are making the kingdom of God around you or not. So I think when it pops through your letterbox or into your in-tray, inbox, if you get it electronically, rather than just filing it or being slightly worried about what it says at the very end, could I invite you next time just to have a look at it? It's a bit embarrassing. I'm full disclosure here. Uh, I bank with (coughs) HSBC... great bank on a whole load of levels, not a bank I feel comfortable with any longer. So one of my challenges to myself is that next time I see you, you need to ask me whether I've moved banks or not. Because increasingly I want to be banking with a bank where it's clearer to me because of the scale and size of it, where its money's going and why. HSBC is just so enormous now that all we seem to hear is whether they're going to relocate their headquarters abroad or not, and uh, very little about what's actually happening in the community. So there's a big question there, which is where do you bank? Uh, And how many bank accounts do you have? I have some other bank accounts that aren't represented here. This is my main one so that I can talk to you about it. Um, I have some money in the Yorkshire Building Society, um, which is a bank I approve of. So I'm going to increasingly move more money to there. That was my savings account, but as they say in the trade, I'm currently restructuring my career because I have small children, um, so I no longer have a monster salary that would make banks think I was a, 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 good, a good prospect, so very few savings at the moment. Now, I've done a very simple red, amber, green. I'll show you the best page because there's quite a lot of green on that. Um, you could do this with letters. You could do it with stickers, dots, anything you like. Uh, there's quite a lot of red on that page. Uh, I've given myself red for things like Amazon because they're not paying their fair share of tax. Uh, It's also red because this is vanity purchasing of my books so that I can give them to friends. At the moment, it's very hard to find them anywhere else other than on Amazon. Um, I've also given myself a red for TK Maxx, which is a bit of a bummer because TK Maxx has a dreadful record around um, particularly the fabrics and things that they use, probably because of the nature of what their business is. I think they're okay on the tax front, but they're not great on the kind of supply chain. Um, So it is a bit salutary when you start Googling some of the things on your bank statements and think, oh, crikey. Also, I noticed that my, having looked into it, there's a a handout that's got some links on it, by the way. There's a very useful website called ethicalconsumer.org, which gives you all kinds of league tables about where you buy your groceries and things. And I learned that my current mobile phone provider is pretty down in the league tables, so I probably need to think about moving that. Um, I've got lots of greens on this one because I've been to the co-op, I've been to a local off-license, I've been to the House of Brewer up in Scotland, which is privately owned and does a lot in the community. I've done a subscription to Faith in Business Quarterly through Ridley Hall. Uh, I've been to the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh, which is a charity with my children, and I patronised Blackwells, which is a good independent bookseller. I've been to some local cafes, uh, and I've been travelling on the train. I've got some reds here for flights I've had to take. My new thing on that is to... Every time one of my relatives asks me what I want as a present, I get them to plant me trees, because we have all got too much stuff, really, um, which makes me feel a wee bit better about that, and I just try and keep that down. I've also got some greens here, because... I've been to the charity shops. You'll be pleased to know this lovely outfit today, including shoes, courtesy of a variety of Islington charity shops. Um, I've got some ambers because I've been to Smith's in a hurry when I was rushing through the train station. I'm not quite sure. I need to look into them a bit more about whether I feel comfortable shopping there. But these convenience shops are a bit too convenient, and I probably need to just plan better. Um, And also... Not sure about um, Weatherspoons. I seem to have a bill here from Weatherspoons because um, there's some issues there around encouraging early morning drinking, which we don't approve of. Um, I've also... A lot of my cash has gone on cabs because of the way I travel. I'm not sure how happy I am about that. Um, and I've also got some... Amber's here for my insurance, which is a fairly middle-ranking insurance provider in the ethical tables, and I could probably do better, and also for eBay, who don't pay their fair share of tax either. So even though Amazon and eBay, I'm using the marketplaces and all that kind of thing, which is thumbs up, um, the holding companies aren't thumbs up, so that's a bit tricky, Um, and that's something I think we all wrestle with, because we know that one of the reasons there are males still in business is because of Amazon and eBay, so there's some good that they're doing there. Um, What else have I got in here that you might want to hear about? Um, Cash. I've given myself quite a lot of green for cash because as I said earlier, it's quite easy just to forget to get money out and use your card for everything. But there are a lot of small shops that then have to pay a whole load of bank charges for that kind of thing. So sometimes having some cash for the smaller transactions can be really very helpful. I've given myself some greens for giving to charity, but I need to do more on that. So there's something about what's not on your statement. Are there any savings you ought to be doing through credit loan, credit companies? Um, What are they called? Credit unions, (laughs) that's the word. Um, And again, there's a link on that bit of paper for how you could find your local credit union um, and join that. Um, And there's also something um, that they were doing in Cape Cod when I was last there, which they had a lovely idea, which was about finding three local organizations or businesses that you really approved of and just pledging to spend $50 a month there as a way of kind of investing in their future success. Um, When I lived in... um london i used to worship in um, christ church in chelsea and um on, on the king's road there's this very beautiful flower stall and what would tend to happen is you'd be trotting along king's road you'd see this lovely flower stall and go gosh brilliant how fabulous that reminds me i must get flowers for granny and then you'd nip into waitress to buy them there now Waitrose, great outfit the thing is if you keep doing that then the flower stall going to close down So I'm now trying to go out of my way to support organisations that give me great joy and pleasure and to the whole community that are a bit more expensive, but it's the use them or lose them phenomenon. So I'd encourage you to do that, partly because there's some interesting science behind that. The New Economics Foundation did a really interesting piece of research, which they called the multiplier, the local multiplier, where they tried to track... Money. So they imagined that everyone that touched the money had blue paint on their hands and they tried to figure out if you spend a pound, you know, what, wh- whose fingers go on it um, and does it stay in the community or does it does it go away? And what they found is if you take your pound and you spend it in a, one of these big chain shops, um, it tends to pretty much go straight to London or straight offshore depending on what their arrangements are um, because that's the way that, you know, these organisations work in terms of scale and size and efficiency and whatnot. Um, so it's kind of lost the community. So they worked, out it was probably worth the equivalent of about 36p to the local community, your pound, if it was spent in a big chain. What they worked out by doing this multiplier around who touched it and where it went was if you spent a pound in a local shop, because it was then paid out in local wages and bought local suppliers were producing things and whatever, they worked out, it multiplied out to £1.76 for that community. So your pound became worth £1.76 if it was spent locally. So that to me was a really great Thought about your opportunity to enrich your local community, just the ordinary things you do anyway, but just doing a bit more deliberately and a bit more often. So I would encourage you to do this exercise, it's quite salutary. I do have a lot of green, largely because of my charity shopping habit. Um, I'm quite addicted to shopping, and obviously that's not a good thing to be if you're not keen on consumer society. So I figured out that charity shopping was a good way to nail it, because then I can go quite mad in a charity shop, and it's all donation, really, isn't it? And then if I make dreadful purchases, I just take them back to charity shop, and they get more money for them, so it's brilliant. Um, So win-win all round. Um, But it it is a reproach because it does make me think there's a lot more I can do here, not only in terms of moving my account, but also proactively choosing organisations that I want to support and making sure they're in here. So that if you get a call from St Peter and he asks you your bank statement, you pony up and you say, mate, I'm proud of this. This is how I am helping build the kingdom. So that's my challenge to you. If you just do one thing between now and next week, vote your cash in a slightly better way, just around something small. And then gradually, those messages about supply and demand will create the sort of market that we want to be proud for. And then they will be an icon for the kingdom. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Angus and Eve, very much indeed for um, giving us some thoughts. And uh, this is your cue now for starting to formulate the questions that you want to ask. But I I just want to start, if I may, by some people here know that um, I once went to hear Alec McCowan um, read from memory, as it were, uh, the whole Gospel of St. Mark. And uh, he did it at the National Theatre. And I went to hear and And uh, the the amazing thing about it, apart from the strange thing of breaking off for a chalk ice after the Transfiguration, (laughs) um, the amazing thing about that evening that I remember, apart from that, is the discomfort that entered the auditorium when Jesus talked about money. Hmm. It was discernible, people were shifting. Uh, and that's because Jesus does it quite a lot uh, doesn't talk about sex a great deal but he does talk about money um, and what I'm wondering as I've been listening to both of you is at the end of the day do you think we're talking about the human heart here um, somebody once said the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and as I, as I was listening to you I, I thought money or the heart do you see what I'm getting at here, Mm. and and perhaps that's where the kingdom is, Mm. can you just...
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think very simply I would absolutely agree with that, because I think when you start thinking about this as an expression of your behaviour, it becomes you, it becomes how you behave, it becomes part of your character and your power and influence and your behaviour and your preferences and all those things, it's not something else that kind of accidentally is something that you're involved with, It, it becomes yours and your choices not something that other people have control over. Um, So I think absolutely, because I think that the fact that it is very hard to get people to want to declare their tax returns, let alone bring bank statements along, um, shows that it's something we feel very uncomfortable about being honest and transparent about. Um, I was on the radio on Sunday with a lady from the Iona community, and one of their disciplines is they meet up regularly to go through their bank statements together. Um, And it's interesting to think about who would you be happy to talk about your bank statement with? Mm -hmm. And and why not if not? Mm -hmm. Because I think that is absolutely on the money, as they say.
0: Uh, Thoughts about the heart?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think
1: um, it's probably relatively unusual today to be excited by the church, but um, I do think one of the reasons the church is at its best, uh, and the frustration it so often isn't at its best, uh, an exciting institution is because if we want this kind of transformation it has to happen at both a deeply personal spiritual level and at a structural level and when I was a student I um, thought well quite a lot of my friends are very into personal transformation meditation and mindfulness um, other friends are very into social action campaigning but that, that makes it as if the sin and the wrong is all out there and none of it's in here um, and at its best um, one of the ways the church can be an icon and a herald of the kingdom is by actually having the conversation at all those levels because mm-hmm. we, we can only achieve change if mm-hmm. we're honest about what needs to change in the heart but are also honest about the fact that well both that structures need to change and that those structures shape our hearts. We are partly formed uh, by the economy, the rhythms of work, the nature of advertising. So if we really want transformation, it has to happen at those different levels. I
0: was was thinking as you were talking about your bank statement that
1: I was thinking of Rowan Williams'
0: question, you know, for whom is your money good news? Mm. Really key question, for whom is your money good news if you believe in gospel? Mm. Um, Okay, enough of me. Questions from the floor, please. Okay, can we go right to the back? Can you just wait until the microphone arrives and then everybody will be able to hear?
4: I don't want to be a party pooper, but are we really addressing the subject? Surely the whole thing's based on fraud. If I go to the bank to borrow money to buy my house... They pretend to lend me uh, uh, £200,000, but in fact, they don't lend me a penny. I spend the rest of my life paying them the £2,000 two or three times over. After 30 years, I have a house and I'm I'm happy, but the people that loan me the money have the value of two houses and they never loan me a penny. It's fraud. Fraud. Thank you.
2: I, don't think I, would, I, I think that is one way of describing it. I think I would describe it as trust, because we're trusting that um, when the money, well, when the music stops, that the thing will equal out. Um, I know that what has happened with particularly the conversations that the Archbishop has kicked off about Wonga is we've started to get a lot more familiar, particular, and worried about the use cost of money. Unfortunately, that's our fault as Christians, by the way. Um, if you think about usury, um, all the monotheistic traditions have in, in their books a prohibition on lending out money at interest. If you remember, the Jews famously reimagined that as lending Jew on Jew, so it was okay to lend to non-Jews, and they became the money lenders of Europe. At about the same stage in our development, Christianity came up with the scholastics and this idea of... Uh, just price and thinking about how to reflect the opportunity cost of lending your money out to buy that particular house and not putting it into a voyage that was going off to the Northwest Passage or India or something. Um, And also the risk cost of that perhaps not being repaid one day. So we reimagined the idea of usury to be about um, ridiculous amounts of interest, unjust amounts of interest, because there was a reasonable amount of interest that reflected that use cost and the risk around lending. Now... When we have rates with some of these payday lenders that are 1,546 APR or whatever it is, it's clear something's gone really wrong with that system and it's really broken. But it is the natural progression of A, our decision as Christians way back then to admit that there was this idea of reasonable interest. Then it's just about arguing what that price is. And now that we've decided that market pricing is the best way to determine price, if the market will pay 2,000% APR, that's fine. Now, I agree with you that something's gone very wrong with that, which is why I think it's time that we got back into just price arguments and usury arguments, which is what we have started to do, particularly with all the initiatives Angus is involved with around payday lending and credit unions.
0: Okay, Thank can you I ask um, Angus to, to take up this uh
1: Important point that's being made at the
0: moment.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I just really building on, on what Eve's saying. Um, I think this is tricky territory. Precisely, I mean, precisely, if we if we begin with the concrete example of payday lending, it actually turns out that to lend money in a short term way in small amounts to people, even if you don't make a profit. I'm actually um, involved in an attempt to work out what a not-for-profit that did that would look like. Actually, that the, the, um, the use, those kind of questions about how much it costs to do yields quite a high level of interest. And what's really interesting when you begin to say, well, what's different about that social enterprise from Wonga um, is that Wonga was deliberately engaging In transactions that it knew would damage people. What became clear about the payday lending industry in particular is that its business model depended on people defaulting and its advertising was deliberately designed to encourage people at times of stress to get into transactions that were bad for them. Now, that may seem very simplistic, but I think that's not a bad place to start, is to think about Is this transaction one, is this line of business one I can honestly represent to myself as a vocation? And I would argue that someone involved in a not-for-profit, which uh, might engage people who need to borrow money and might help them to think about uh, other ways of saving. Do you think a credit union might be more appropriate? That's an interaction which can be good news for someone. Whereas um, the interactions that Wonga and other payday lenders were engaged in were very clearly and quite deliberately, not good news. And that's, that's a good point to begin to get some kind of personal handle uh, on what otherwise can seem very abstract transactions.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, more questions? Yes, just in the middle here, Nicola.
5: Thank you. I have a question that if I go to scare you, little son, he will run for protection to the computer or to the father?
2: Could you repeat the question, please?
5: If I scare the little son, he will run for protection and peace to the father or yep. to the computer? What is the... It mean that where is the relation that the modern people, if we are not taught the right relationship we lost it when we grow it, but if we keep it, we naturally have this this link with the father, with the biological father, but we should be taught or teach to keep this relationship with the father, with the heavenly father.
2: I I would say two things on that. I think there's one thing which is about the church teaching about money to try and articulate what we think the father would like us to do, but there's also something about our fathers at home, or mothers at home, parents, carers at home. I don't really remember being taught anything about money in my home. It wasn't really discussed. There was magical housekeeping appeared on the mantelpiece, and that got us our shoes and our ladybird books, and we didn't really understand anything about why that happened and how it happened. Um, So one thing that I have heard, my children are still too young, but one thing I've heard a parent doing is separating out pocket money. So a third of it is to be spent, a third is to be saved, and a third is to be given to a charity of the child's choice. And the child can roll that up and start saving for something big in in charitable terms as well as in savings terms. But to get a discipline early on about taking ownership of money and deciding how you want to divvy it up um, would be a great thing, I think, that we could encourage Parents to do, and I know Angus again is involved in some very interesting initiatives um, through the, um, the credit campaigns he's working on to educate children in schools about savings as a, a way to try and help people understand where they can get healthy about money earlier.
1: Angus, do you have a comment? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think helping um, helping people of all ages to see this as an issue where they can they can make a difference is absolutely crucial. Um, I mean, my, um, my wife's a psychologist, and, and she uh, has been involved in some work around um, therapies They encourage people who just experience you know, huge problems they think of as overwhelming, just to do you know, to, to that simple thing about working out, well, actually, what's the one thing next you can do about it? And I think we are quite a politically depressed society. When we think about money, when we think about the housing crisis, um, it just feels overwhelming. So part of what we need um, is to break some of this down into the small but meaningful steps that uh, that can make a difference, um, and not to write off the whole system as an impossible evil, as sort of something where spirituality would be about like staying away from it, but actually acknowledging that um, part of what the incarnation is about is that God is with us in the mess and the complexity. Um, and thinking about, well, what is actually the thing I can do next? I'm surprised you're not angrier. I mean, we have a system that privatises
0: profits and socialises risks. Doesn't it get you angry?
2: I think I'm so furious I'm on the march about it. But I think, um, (laughs) I feel that I know how we can do this. I think I was angrier when I felt that we had no influence over it, when it felt like there were random decisions we made politically and globally that we had nothing to do with and were nothing to do with us. But I'm hugely encouraged by not only my faith, but by what the church has already done and is doing and I think it's about scaling it up. Um there's a lovely statistic about the NRA. I think they've only got, you know, four thousand declared members or something. If you think about how many members the Church of England has, <laughs> the NRA is most famously the, the, the best lobbying organisation in the world. Well, we're stronger than they are in terms of numbers. Uh, you know, they might have guns, but we've got, uh, we've got God. Um, and it feels to me that whenever we have mobilised, whether it's about Jubilee, whether it's about fair trade, about anything else, great things happen very quickly. So I'm really encouraged by that. And the opportunity to speak here tonight to so many of you makes me feel even more encouraged because you've all come. And you will go away, and every time you look at your bank statement, you're going to worry about what Dr. Poole's going to say to you next time she meets you. (laughs) Well,
0: it is true that Martin Luther King never said, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a vision. Uh, Can I – yes, the woman here.
4: Hi, I found it really helpful what you said about spending, but I just wanted to know your opinions on saving. So, is that just hoarding, and what is Christian about saving in your opinion.
0: Mm. Um,
4: If if
2: I start again with that, um, saving is just such a very good discipline. Um, I was brought up in a household where you didn't buy things unless you had sufficient savings. Some of my contemporaries were brought up in households where you just played credit card games right from the word go. And I noticed they tend to get themselves into pickles because they tend to go for things they can't actually afford and then hope that one day they'll be able to afford them. So I think as a discipline, as a kind of ethical practice, saving is good for the character. I think saving is also good because saving isn't actually hoarding because the money, because you save it in an institution, is blessed and goes further on. So if you put it into a credit union, it goes out to lend to people who are really struggling even if you put it in dear old HSBC it is still going out in the shape of loans even if it's all kind of slightly magic money at heart it is allowing them exponentially to lend out more because of your little mite at the bottom of the pyramid and that is investment in new plant new staff new factories new enterprises to fuel an economy that will get ever greater and provide more jobs, provide you know, wealth for the nation. So I think saving is, is brilliant all around. And thinking about where you could save um, so that your money does go on its way rejoicing rather than essentially being hoarded is a really good thing to think about too. Thank you.
0: Thanks.
1: Yeah, really just to build on, on that uh, final point that um, you know, we often think in terms of um, charity about what we give away. Uh, and it's good to think also about doing a kind of examine of the bank statement, as he's been helping us to. And there's also this third thing, which actually when we save, there are different things that money can do. Uh, I mean, there are ways of investing it that enable imaginative social enterprises to happen. Uh, here in London, we've just uh, raised a million pounds through the London Missional Housing Bond, which is people, a fairly secure investment uh, with a, a com- competitive rate of interest, which is enabling churches in inner city areas to um, house more workers at low rent. So there are imaginative things we can do with the money that we're saving as well as the money that we're spending and giving away. There's a woman halfway down
0: here, yes, the the hand here.
1: Hi, thanks. Um, That was really fantastic. Um, I'm interested in this idea of reasonable interest and usury. Um, I've just joined the board of a local credit union and our objective is to move away from um, kind of depending on grants and to be as sustainable as possible. And we're only sustainable with interest. Um, and so is there, you know, do we need to be rethinking that completely and would that, what does that look like? Because then it becomes people paying for the, bank to hold their money that they can then lend that's no interest, like what would that reconfiguration even start to look like in something like a credit union?
0: Okay. Angus. Okay, well,
1: sir, thank you. We need to carry on. Angus. The, I mean, the questions are very concretely. I mean, we, we um, you know, the story about the person who said, you know, how do I get to Tipperary? Well, I wouldn't start here. Well, actually, economically, we have to start here. And here is a place where people do need to borrow money, and that has a cost, and we need to think about, through a mixture of credit unions and how they reshape themselves and other forms of lending, how we help people together onto healthier patterns. Um, And that sometimes sometimes does create difficult questions. Uh, But I think there's a danger of a kind of ethical perfectionism that would make credit unions lend at such low rates that actually huge numbers of people wouldn't be helped by them. Um, I think the, the real question for the Christian isn't how can I allow myself to feel morally perfect but what does it mean to love the other person and that involves getting into these messy questions and trusting in God's grace that we'll be forgiven when we get them wrong. I think it's a really important spiritual as well as economic question.
2: Eve? Uh, Not very much to add to that, but just to say, I I think the problem is that um, this idea of market pricing makes it very hard for us to think back to what kind of cost plus pricing looked like. And this is assuming, of course, money is a commodity like water or pens or something, which is, again, an interesting side issue that we've kind of thought that you just price money in the same way you would price any other commodity, given its particular power. Um, And I think that is quite a difficult one because if we're in a market where you can pay thousands of pounds for a handbag and millions of pounds for a striker or a chief executive in order to stop other people having them, it's not about what it costs or even what it's worth. It is all about sequestering assets because you have more money than anyone else. So I think it just means that it's a very messy debate and trying to get back to what what (laughs) does a thing cost... And therefore, what is reasonable to have as a profit on top of it is what we need to get back to, which I know is what Angus is doing trying to figure out if you're looking at a credit union structure, what would be reasonable to ensure your ability to operate sustainably in the future?
0: Okay. There's a hand. Nicola, if you could come halfway down here. Uh, Along, that's it, right in the middle.
1: Yeah. Uh, You referred to the power of the church, the size of the church, can the church do something to reverse house price inflation? The government clearly do not want to. Who wants to start? Wow. Angus. 6,000 people, most of them from churches, will be gathering on the 28th of April at the Copper Box at the Olympic Park. Um, that's with uh, Zach Goldsmith and Sadiq Khan. Uh, It won't be a normal hustings where we simply listen to politicians saying what they're going to do. It will be churches in alliance with mosques, trade unions, schools, having listened across London around the housing crisis, um, asking politicians to respond um, to some concrete proposals around community land trusts, around an honest definition of affordable housing. Just like we've got a living wage, we need a living rent, which is a house you can live in if you're earning a living wage. So I think, again, it's one of these things about political depression. The problem is so vast that there's a danger of framing it um, so that it just seems impossible to tackle. But actually, if we think about what power we already have, Uh, and we act on some winnable issues there, then that actually builds momentum and confidence for more action. That's exactly what happened on the living wage. It started just with one or two tower blocks in Canary Wharf, and it's now become a national movement. And I'm hoping um, that together with um, others in civil society, we can really make an impact on housing. But come along on the 28th if you can, one and all.
2: This is really difficult. The Church Commissioners for England had a massive estate, several massive estates, which were social housing, which they sold. And there was a huge furore at the time. The argument, as ever, was about fiduciary duty and the fact the church is hungry for cash and needs more every year. And this was an asset that could be realised The church has a lot of land. Hmm. Not just the church commissioners with all the land they've got. Every parish has Hmm. got land. And what happens? I used to work in the redundant churches department. What used to happen was you would see a nice bit of land and think, oh, we could turn it into flats, couldn't we? And then we're quids in, no problem. And pretty much every church you visit, not necessarily the rural ones, but city ones, have probably got a slice of land they've flogged off for something or other. Quite often, nice executive flats. And that's tricky. Increasing the churches are realising that isn't the way to go, and they're making sure that whatever deals they do with developers, at least a percentage of those properties are for key workers. But there's a lot more we could do there. There really is.
0: Okay, there's a question here.
3: Thanks. Thank you me. Um, I'm not sure we can just dispense with this idea of usury by talking about payday loans. Because actually interest is a wealth transfer mechanism that actually affects everyone. When you buy a railway ticket, there's interest in the cost of the ticket. And there's empirical evidence that shows the bottom 80% of the population pay all their interest to the top 10%. So it is actually a wealth transfer mechanism, and I think the the church actually has a responsibility not to compete with payday lenders, which is a fairly marginal problem, although it's a very big problem for the people concerned. But actually, the overall economy is built on usury. And I think, contrary to what Eve says, that we just accept this as being the reality, I think we need to rethink the whole way in which we deal with money. Interest is exploitative. There was no accident in them prohibiting interest. The fact that the church institution got captured by those forces that profit from interest doesn't mean to say that we cannot now question it. Now, I would would throw it back to you that usury or interest on money is a fundamental problem. Now, yes, in the short term, one needs to borrow money in the day-to-day reality of today, but shouldn't the church be looking to expunge interest from our economy? Thank you. Eve?
2: I've got a lot of sympathy for that, but I don't, I don't think um, I've maybe been clear enough. I'm not saying that I think we should just give up on interest and just let the market decide. I, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we have got hoodwinked into that debate by assuming money is a category like any other. And therefore, if we believe in market pricing, which is the prevailing orthodoxy, we can't touch it. Now, when the House of Lords debated the Consumer Credit Act, one of the bishops was due to talk about reinstituting an interest ceiling Um, because there was one in the States until the 80s, I think, and there was one in the UK until I think the 70s where there was legislation set that capped interest rates. Now, that speech didn't go ahead because of a lot of interesting lobbying, I gather. Um, But it is an interesting thing to think about, is do we think, apart from the caps on payday lending in particular, we need to have a conversation which is if we are going to say money is no longer a piece of coin, it is actually about relative power, relative politics and information flows, what does it mean to understand what the use cost of that is and what the scarcity of it is and what would be fair as a turn on that as a use. Because I still think that it is true, um, we can argue about the kind of mechanics of the extraordinary pyramid structure we've got around lending, that if I want to buy a car and I can't afford it, someone has to guarantee that for me. Now, call it a loan and call it a load of cash that allows me to go off and pass the cash to the guy who's going to sell me the card. That's obviously how it works. But it is a transaction around them guaranteeing that this can be mine. Now, Sharia finance is an interesting place to go for debates on this. Now, you could argue that there is the technology available today to do some fairly clever transactions that kind of avoid interest being relevant um, but kind of have the same effect. But actually that is fundamentally about risk and reward and sharing both the upside and the downside and I think there's a lot we could learn from that.
1: Angus, Church and Interest. Yeah, I'm, I suppose I'm instinctively... I, I, I see the need for um, those fundamental debates but I don't think we should be sniffy about incremental change. I mean, this this was a familiar debate from the start of the Living Wage Campaign. People say, oh, you know, increasing wages by this much, it's only a small thing. What about pensions? Shouldn't it be higher? Actually, when people who experience injustice have an experience of being able to make things different, that builds the power for a bigger change. Uh, And that's, I think, why I, I think these... The the changes that the church has been at the heart of making uh, in the case of uh, payday lending and regulation, the changes that churches and other parts of civil society have made in terms of the living wage, um, are about saying there are moral limits to markets. So I think we can do both. I think we can have the fundamental debates, but also think... Um, about what the realistic next step is. We were told in the living wage campaign that this was impossible, that markets couldn't, you couldn't talk about a just wage, it was just supply and demand. And now we have KPMG saying there's a business case for the living wage because when you pay people properly, it transforms how they behave, that actually um, human beings require dignity and recognition and the laws of supply and demand don't actually uh, fully recognise that labour isn't just a commodity. So I think these incremental changes uh, that churches at the heart at shouldn't be sniffed at because they both create the climate to have some discussion of the bigger questions and they create a movement that has a realistic chance of making a difference.
0: Okay, thank you. Nicola, halfway down here uh, in a sort of maroon top, grey hair, glasses. It's rather
4: thank you very much I'm really interested in what I've been hearing particularly about community organising and uh, the flow of money and how that influences supply and demand my personal bugbear I suppose is housing and yeah. seeing how communities get disrupted and uh, I'm interested in uh, the living rent being linked with the living wage and my gut reaction today to hear how Chinese offshore investors are buying up big blocks of flat uh, in Manchester uh, at a price much higher than you would pay if you were buying it in Manchester. And I initially thought, well that's terrible, but I remember that in the 30s people invested in housing and rented it out and then the rents went down and then lots of people sold all their properties. So, I'm kind of thinking, well, from your perspective, knowing more about economics than myself, should I actually think, well, this is wonderful, it doesn't really matter who is paying for these houses to go up, Uh, if we can link eventually rents and uh, living wage in the UK, then uh, it's good that there is this housing, even though I understand that at the moment these Chinese people and people from anywhere in the world uh, can get perhaps 7.5% on their returns. Uh, which is better than putting their money in a bank.
1: Okay. Can I ask uh, you to lead on this, Angus? Yeah, I mean, that. gosh, that brings together a number of – I mean, at a very simple level, I'm not an expert on this area and will defer to um, – you may have more to say on this, but I mean, you're bringing together two things. One is that uh, the increase in supply of housing is absolutely crucial. Uh, but the other is that we do have an asset bubble at the moment. Uh, and there's a, there's a range of reasons for that. I mean, not least fundamentally, if, if interest rates are so low that if you've got the capacity, you can borrow money and you're investing it in something that goes up by more than the borrowing cost. I mean, that, that's creating. And, and you, see, you, know, you see younger people in London deciding earlier that they have to get on the property ladder before it escapes them. And that, of course, is yet putting yet more money into chasing the assets. So there is a, a fundamental dysfunction in the market at the moment. Uh, Part of that, I think, will be about increasing supply, um, but part of it will be about thinking about other things like community land trusts and living rent that can actually make them, the the way that the housing that exists is allocated, uh, make the market our servant rather than our master. Think about what kind of communities we want and what policies will yield them rather than just allowing ourselves to be shaped by these forces.
2: Eve? I think there's a, a local thing here, which is about um, Greenbelt and building on Greenbelt. Um, I mean, I know there's been a lot of commentary about whether there are a load of developers who are sort of land banking um, right. and waiting for the right time to start building. So there's a, there's a question on that. But there's also a question for all of us. is There's a lot of nimbyism in this debate about where new houses get built and by whom and on what terms. So, there's something before we even get into this debate, which is am I clean in terms of not wanting? I'm from St Andrews, and there's a beautiful medieval rig down the back that used to be beautiful botanical land, which looks from what the university's up to as so though that's going to be sold off for flats fairly soon, um, which is devastating for the medieval townscape, but really crucial for. A town that is overrun with investment properties because rich parents buy houses for their lovely children to go and be students there because of the will and Kate effect, uh, and the locals get priced out so I'm having to talk to my mother quite severely when she's taking on the council about that, about what sort of society we want if we keep objecting to housing because it doesn't uh, suit our view. So there's something local about that. There's also a big policy issue in London about just the sheer number of properties that are empty, Hmm. um, that are only bought by foreign investors for investment purposes, and there is no intention ever to inhabit them not even to rent them out at extortionate rates or, or anything. So there is a question about do we want to have emptiness around us and is there something that we ought to be doing as a nation through regulation or whatever else it might be to say that at least these things have to be <laughs> lived in even if they're also an investment.
0: There's a man standing by the column at the back who's been trying to ask a question. Thanks. Thanks. So, I was wondering, is it a more effective marketing message to say, so rather than all the stuff about effective consumerism, like ethical consumerism, which is like really hard and really complicated and takes lots of brains and time to figure out, even stuff like fair trade is not like straightforward from that point of view, and a lot of people don't have a lot of time or a lot of brain, just to say, earn as much as you can. Through any like moderately ethical means, and then just give a flat ten percent, which is the message that the effective altruist charities like GiveWell or Eighty Thousand Hours or Centre for Effective Altruism generally preach—just earn as much as you can, earn to give, and then give a flat ten percent. You could like, you could even call this the tithe.
2: Okay, I, th- I think that lacks ambition, though, because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think you have to sort of earn money in a vacuum. Um, and possibly a slightly dodgy vacuum if you're going to make as, money, as much as you possibly can in order to sort of expiate yourself with 10% later on in the line. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this is, is about the whole person, the heart, and where you're putting all of your efforts and all of your skills, resources, and talents. Um, so I think it is very material where you put your labour, whether it's paid or unpaid, um, as part of that equation. So I do think, who was it that said, earn all you can, save all you can, spend all you can, whatever it was, give away all you can, um... A lot of sympathy for that. I don't think we should deliberately underearn to prove a point, um, because there's something about using our talents well. Um, but there is also something about not being silly about that and thinking, well, you know, I'll do a deal with the devil and then I'll make so much money I can build a cathedral. I don't think it works like that.
1: And, and, it's coal tax, actually. Where, where built this one? I <coughs> mean, the question I'd want to ask in, in that picture is, where are where are the poor in that picture? And the answer is. If, if all we did was earn all we could and give away a bit, um, they're the recipients of the philanthropy of another bunch of people. Um, and I don't think that's in, I think that, I agree with you, I don't think that's, that's an appropriate ambition as an answer to someone who's, you know, on a poverty wage, holding down three different cleaning jobs, not having time for their children. They want dignity. Uh, in the economy they want their labour to be respected they want a life where they are um, a full and honoured part of that economic uh, community and I think that nicely illustrates the way that the word charity has gone wrong that we it began as a word which was about the kinds of relationships God might call us into and it's turned into a word about what one bunch of people gives to another Um, and I think that's where we do have to uh, engage with the structural questions um, as well as give money away.
0: The man on the front row here. Yes. Uh, okay. Thank you. Well, you've, you've touched on it, but I was hoping we could have just a bit more old time religion, if possible. <laughs> and whether you could say something explicitly about the problem of greed.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, could I start with that? There's a lovely. Um, Thomas Traherne poem about um, yearning, really, and wanting to be close with the stars. And um, Rowan Williams writes very beautifully about this because a lot of the sort of anti-consumer debate is about desires having gone wrong uh, which is just another way of explaining greed really and it's about sort of technologies of desire like advertising that kind of force us into all these things and and it is true that when they do the studies on payday lending 50% is because people's washing machines are broken or they've got ill or you know whatever 50% is impulse purchases though Uh, back to my point about savings being a really important discipline Um, and I think there is something about Trying to understand desire and what we are desiring and why. And Rowan Williams has a lovely line about us feeling empty and searching until we find rest in God. And it feels to me that we should be greedy, but just greedy for better things, greedy for justice, greedy for right thinking about charity, greedy for us all to be icons, and greedy for us all to have shiningly beautiful bank statements. Because if all of us did in this room, that would be extraordinary.
0: Well, it has been said <laughs> we're spending money we don't have on things we don't want in order to impress people we don't like.
2: <laughs> Absol- <Absolute.
1: laughs> uh, it's a pretty desperate state of affairs. I was—I mean, if you want a bit of old-time religion, uh, just struck by the, actually the reading that was set this morning at mass—the um, the stoning of Stephen. Really struck by the fact that he—he um, he is really in a robust confrontation with the religious leaders of his time, speaking truth to power. And then um, as he's being executed, he prays for their forgiveness. And there's something really interesting about how you challenge injustice and love the perpetrator uh, in him and in Christ. And I think we have to have the confidence that when we are denouncing the impact of greed that is an act of love because people are trapped by greed. It's not about saying there's a 10% or a 1% who are the wicked people and if only they weren't like that. I mean, that's a kind of scapegoating and a lack of love. It's about a recognition that the greed in all of us is a desire gone wrong and that the building of a better society is an act of love even for those who you have to agitate and challenge in the process. Okay, we're coming, drawing to an end. There's a man with the beard here by the column.
0: Thank you very much. A slightly different question. We've been talking about housing and Panama Papers and things like that, and then we're talking about buying fair trade coffee and turning my bank statement into something Dr. Poole would approve of. What? is the point at which the micro, what I can do, bridges to the macro. If I'm a widow and I give two mites, yeah, it's a a lot I've given in my terms, but it's not a lot in temple terms. How do we bridge the micro and the macro? Mm -hmm. Eve.
2: It is a leap of faith, uh, which I make confidently for two reasons. One is about critical mass and scale, And I think that Christians have a good reason to do this, and we can therefore be critical mass, which would scale up very quickly. Um, I, I think a lot of us are already doing it, but we could make that snowball roll a bit faster. So that makes me feel that the small mites could snowball quickly. The other thing is that we've been rather trapped into thinking that the economy is like a very beautiful steam engine, and it's got all these pistons, and you bung coal in and steam comes out, and we all shout hooray when the poop-poop happens. Um, And, you know, we sort of get thinking a machine, that the whole thing is a machine, and we kind of tickle interest rates, and we tickle a bit here and tickle a bit there, and it's very finely tuned. We know that's absolute nonsense. I mean, if you try and do any modelling of markets, every time the government pretends that they're going to control it by X, Y, or Z, over time, there's absolutely no material effect. I mean, if you look at the details, sort of using radio signal frequency blah on this, there's no logic to the market. There is no clarity around one action here, creating a big action here. So it's again a bit of a myth that governments like us to think that they can control the economy through all their macroeconomic fiddling, but but we know that's actually nonsense. What we do know is through butterfly effect thinking and thinking about complex adaptive systems is that just the odd push and shove can actually have more of an effect than some grand macroeconomic policy. Um, and what we do know, um, given how slow politics tends to be, is that consumer behaviour is faster than political and governmental per- behaviour, particularly because governments always feel that they have to act in concert with other governments because we're all in a big global economy and we're all part of the same thing. Um, so what you'll tend to see, I mean, every time there's some sort of random Christmas enthusiasm for some awful Disney thing, um, all of a sudden everybody goes bananas and the thing's sold out within two seconds flat. So. Um, f- Fair trade is used as a good example of that. It, it took quite a while to build up, though. These days, because information travels faster, it's easier for us to collaborate and for us to team up and do more. Um, so I'm not sure I can say, you know, do this and therefore this will happen. But here's an example for you. This is my shoes example for those of you who have oodles of shoes. They, they reckon that women on average have about seven pairs of shoes. In their wardrobes, and they wear maybe three pairs frequently and they reckon that chaps have about four pairs of shoes on average, and they wear the same pair every day so um At any given time, everyone in this room has probably got a spare pair of shoes in their cupboard. They might not fit very well, they might have been a bit of an impulse purchase, they might be a bit old, whatever. Now, if we were all tomorrow to take our shoes to the nearest charity shop, say they've all got an Oxfam next door for the sake of argument, those shoes would sell in a charity shop for £2, £4, something like that, depending on whether you're in Islington or somewhere else. Um... Now, I'm not suggesting a, a glut in the shoe market, by the way. There's, uh, there's uh, issues on that front, too. But say we all did that. Say we all took our shoes in tomorrow. Um, there's, what, 250 of us here, something like that? A couple of quid per shoes. That's 500 quid. Um, let's see what that would be. That would be um, medicine for a whole village, if you were putting all that to Oxfam. It would be clean water for about 1,000 people. It would be education for several families. It could be hundreds of mosquito nets. Just a few random shoes taken to Oxfam tomorrow. Um, So there are ways just to very deliberately choose to act. And yes, there's a leap of faith that other people will follow you. But that's what leadership is about. And I think for too long in this country, Christians have been following and not leading. And it's our turn now to build the sort of economy that we want.
1: Amen.
0: Um, ladies and gentlemen I promised you that we would finish at uh, 8 o'clock we focused very much tonight on the, uh, the charity are we using cash, who do we bank with, where do we shop and money has obviously been the focus but the title of this evening had two parts, had money and the kingdom of God and of course the kingdom of God is a terribly elusive thing, Jesus talked about it all the time and never told you what it was uh, and except in story and parable and confused people uh, as he did so by the sound of it. Could you just end by giving us some sort of summary of what you mean by the kingdom of God and one thing all of us here can do with our money to try and help bring that about?
2: I think it's about heavenly relationships and thinking about all the relationships we have as they're evidenced through our use of money. And when we use our money, are we improving a relationship or are we reducing or manipulating or taking advantage of a relationship? And for me, the kingdom is about beautiful relationships because Christ is in all of us and we're all made in God's image. That would be my answer.
0: And the one thing would be this?
2: The one thing would be if you just speak to one person about your bank statement, a friendly person, or change one transaction, that would be a start. We'll take your shoes into Oxfam tomorrow.
1: Angus. Um, one th- not a straight answer. One thing I think you should do other than reading the various wonderful reports on the CTC stall is um, read uh, Laudato Si, the, the papal uh, encyclical on ecology, because the Pope beautifully expresses how the kingdom of God is both experienced in um, a more just economic order, but also in the struggle to build one. Um, and I think there's something very beautiful and very exciting about when people who have lost confidence they can make a difference individually and collectively grow um, and believe something can change and find something in common with people very different from them. So I think there's the Bananarama point, the, that it's the way we do things as well as what we're aiming for. So I would say, think about Yes, how you spend your money, but also what relationships you have or could have to work with others um, to make change happen.
0: Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I'm very struck from the earliest days of the church that the church would often talk about combating the powers of uh, domination. And uh, certainly one of the dominating powers uh, is greed or the... uh, the corrupted human heart as it exhibits itself in our attitudes towards money. And yet, I think all of us here probably feel that our consciences are somewhat tranquilized. And that's a very dangerous situation, uh, particularly if you're a Christian supposed to be alert to the Kingdom of God. And I think what you've both done today is slapped us out of a little bit of that tranquillity, Uh, and made us uh, think not only about the vision that we're committed to as people of faith, but also uh, what that might mean, not only for our bank statement, but also for our attitudes towards each other. So thank you so much uh, from all of us here for this evening. Thank Thank you.